Two Designers Walk Into a Bar is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. For more information about our show or to discover more podcasts you'll enjoy, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply do that like exactly the way you wrote it this time <laughs> i'll try it that way too <laughs> gotta know the rules before you break I know. the rules i started i started just talking and talking and talking and then i was like hey i'm gonna just ad lib this part yeah, okay <laughs> i'm so glad I'm workshopping I'm, this I'm, I'm bullshit. so glad you're not a commercial airline pilot <laughs> <laughs> or 911 operator. Yeah. What seems to be your trouble? I've been stabbed. Really? <laughs> or, okay. Okay. You want to know trouble? Have you ever met my mother? You want to know trouble? Well, <laughs> you ever been to Golden Corral when the chocolate wonderful is out? That's, that's trouble. trouble, my friend. <laughs> that's trouble. Maybe friend. that's where you're calling from. And if you aren't, maybe we can meet for lunch. <laughs> Welcome to Two Designers Walking to a Bar. A place where pop culture creatives discover design icons that make us tick. And we share a few cocktails in the process. Today we're going to be hitting rewind as we jump in and review the first half of our second season. And nothing goes better with a mixtape than a mixed drink. So grab one of your favorites, invite over a drinking and listening buddy, and see if we mention some of your favorite moments when you join us here back in the bar. So Todd, here we are. Yep. We're uh, back in the bar. I think it's nice that we have our listeners here with us. They've stuck with us this far. It's been two seasons. I think we ought to be mm-hmm. proud of that. I'm going to pat think. us on the back, pat ourselves. I guess we could pat one another on the back. I don't exactly yeah, or, know. Or you could buy me a drink to celebrate. Wouldn't that be good? Uh, is this really that special of an occasion? Yeah. Okay. Well, look, I tell you what, let's leave that up to the listeners. Let's mm. revisit some of our favorite moments from the first part of season two. Hey, you know what? Speaking of bad ideas like me buying you a drink, if you recall our episode 15, we talked about a couple of magnificent flops. What an interesting way to have the beginning of a podcast that talks about pop culture to start talking about flops. And, you know, I think we hit on a couple really good ones. I was really interested in the origins of OK Soda that you were talking about. Yes. I had no idea of the, what's the right word that I'm looking for to describe the origins of OK Soda? Hmm. Complicated, superfluous, uh, I don't know. Why don't you tell me? Yeah, I, hmm, hmm. Here's a word I'll use, I suppose. It's sort of zeitgeisty, dada approach to beverage creation. How about that? That's a really good one. Yeah, I'd say it's uh, 
it's extreme obsession about trying to get to the zeitgeist of the Dada. Yeah, it's almost like trying really, really hard to look like you're not trying at all. How about we take a listen to a clip and let the listener decide? Sounds good. So if you're Coca-Cola and you're still sort of licking your wounds from the failed uh, product launch of New Coke, you've, you know, boomeranged back to the original Coke formula. And mm-hmm. the guy who launched New Coke comes to you with another product idea. What would you do? <laughs> Kick his ass out of my office. <laughs> <laughs> well, Coke did exactly the opposite. They welcomed Sergio Zyman with open arms. Nice. <laughs> and so he came in and he had this idea, this beverage idea for <laughs> a new cola product marketed basically at Gen X slackers. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, um, so here's here's the deal. This this is what he figured out, right? So, he was working with Widening Kennedy, you know, the famous ad shop out of Portland, right? And uh, they they were hired to to basically market this soda. So they're looking at trying to figure out what to name it, mm-hmm. and they started to do some research, and they determined that. The most second well-known English language phrase in the whole world is the word Coke Mm. because of Coca-Cola. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And cocaine. What are the two letters in the middle of the word Coke? Uh, Okay. Oak. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Oh, I never. You know what? It's interesting. I never uh, put that together. Yeah. Cool. Okay. (laughs) I know, really. And that uh, can surprise nobody. (laughs) (laughs) And here we are, folks. I love all of the attention paid to starting OK Soda. I guess on the spreadsheet, it was a perfect fit. But, you know, really, when you look at all of those fantastic artists that you told us about Mm -hmm. that created artwork and illustrations for those cans, it was pretty magnificent. Oh, yeah, it was incredible the way they were able to round up this... uh this roster, just this all-star roster of uh, underground comic uh, artists, and again, sort of a touchstone for for Gen X, right? And really trying to make something that, of course, was very, very corporate, very sort of anti-corporate, and and kind of uh, <laughs> sticking it to the man, I guess, while uh, while the, being the, the man, yeah, while the man himself <laughs> is making some money. But you know, there was a uh, there was still some great inside jokes that I think the artists were able to pass through, and uh, and this is one of those moments. As I mentioned earlier, Wine and Kennedy, this ad agency, calls these underground illustrators, you know, because they need to have this street cred, this slacker street cred. Who better to do that than this handful of? Uh, you know, these illustrators. And so Daniel Close, you know, you probably know him, Eight Ball Comics, the movie Ghost World, which is one of my favorite movies. Maybe we'll talk about that again at some point. He was asked later, like, why he decided to do this. And he basically, you know, because the whole idea of this, of course, is it's Coke, it's the man, it's corporate America. You're Mm -hmm. this underground artist and you're selling out to this corporate client right so when close was asked why did you do this he's like it paid well far more than i was making with my comics i think he said it uh it was paid more than the last like four comics projects he had done combined wow and 
Also, he loved the idea of being subversive and doing mm -hmm. something for mm -hmm. Coke where some of it could be, um, some of the subversion could sort of be hidden in plain sight and he could stick it to the man. So for example, <laughs> the character that he drew, he made sure that it had a face with the eyes and the nose uh, of the vacant stare of Charles Manson, <laughs> which I think is amazing. I love that story, Elliot. Speaking of dead stares, the uh, magnificent flop that I was talking about was a more recent one, Google Glass. Mm, yeah, and, yeah. you know, it was, uh, I think I used the phrase, it was a tactic in search of a strategy. And I hit on a couple parts that started to show the, pardon the pun, the cracks in the glass, if you will. Do you remember those? Oh, yeah. Yep, yep. That was when I, I believe in my uh, plumbing the depths of Todd, my infinite pop culture knowledge uh i was able to correctly guess the term glass hole that's right and uh google glass became banned in certain things and our privacy laws had not caught up with our technology so let's hear a clip about that so at that point the cracks started to show in sort of the product itself now obviously it was an interesting idea, and it had a lot of possibilities. It definitely had a lot of what-if factor to it. But unfortunately, they discontinued the beta just six months after the open beta was available due to privacy concerns and reported bugs and low battery life and being banned in public spaces. Yeah, I think people were kind of using them or could use them for very sneaky things, right? Yeah, well, it made making porn a lot easier, you know? Um, because, yeah, I mean, you could just follow people around. Yeah, like weren't weren't they scared of people using them in like dressing rooms and retail oh, stores? Oh, yeah, and restrooms, like yeah. 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 Yeah, they were outlawed in bars. And so here's... Hey, kind of like where... us. <laughs> yeah, Todd, so this was uh, really interesting. As you mentioned, the legal landscape had really not caught up with the technological landscape, which, uh, you know, that's, that's pretty typical. I think this was also a situation where, as you mentioned, the device was ahead of its time in some ways it was really a solution looking for a problem in some ways it was you know it was just kind of all over the place but of course it's persisted unlike okay soda <laughs> google glass and some of the other <laughs> things that it launched right some of this like more broad thinking it's right. still around now so i think that's pretty cool actually yeah i think uh, and uh, we'll hear in this clip but i think there will be more possibilities for Google Glass in the future for certain professions, but I don't see OK Soda returning. Uh, do you, Elliot? You never know. We should check Kickstarter. All right. Well, there you go. Let's listen to this clip about Google Glass. It was, as I said a little while ago, Google was both behind the times and ahead of the times, but it'll be back. Um, the company re did a release. This, this is where we should have the, uh, the Jaws theme music start. Okay. okay. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> or Terminator. I'll be back. It'll be back. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. 
Um, the company did a release in May of 2019 that said the second version of its Enterprise Edition model um, is in the works and would be out. And the pair of glasses are advertised as a risk-free means of increasing productivity in the workspace. So uh, the way that they are approaching it now is not for you know the common guy who's wearing Google Glass, the common glass hole wearing Google Glass out to a bar and trying to look hip and cool while also looking pervy. Um, but <laughs> it gives you a screen that allows employees to multitask uh, without turning on to a phone or another program or another computer. And it also now has, uh, as you started in the beginning, it has augmented reality and virtual reality capabilities, um, as well as improved processors and cameras. And they have partnered with eyeglass designers to make them a little bit more fashion forward. Now, that remains to be seen because, again, they sort of jumped in the fashion world early, but realizing that Google Glass was not a fashion statement. But nonetheless, they have gone back and really redesigned it from a lot of different aspects. But I can imagine that this, while probably not commercially available anytime really soon for you and for me, but I think it would gain a lot of popularity and serve a great need to folks like surgeons or engineers or uh, people that fix highly detailed um, machines, people that help uh, design circuit boards, things like that. Things where as part of your job, you have to take in and you have to uh, understand lots of information at a time without being distracted. You know, as you're talking about this, two things pop into my head. I'm going to go back and I think Terminator is the right music choice because it sort of sounds like that's what the display <laughs> is going to be. Or it's sort of like Neo in the Matrix where you need to, yeah. in a pinch, learn how to fly a helicopter. Yeah, yeah. Good one. Good one. Okay, Todd. So Google Glass this was, in spite of the fact that it really blew up in a lot of the same faces that were wearing Google Glass, you could sort of say it was a, a status symbol of sorts, right? Oh yeah, of course, of course. And so that leads me to think about another form of status symbol, albeit earlier, like 20, 30 years earlier, which was the business card, right? Oh, like in our episode 16, where we talked about designed mad props for movies huh? yes and we both love the 80s and uh the movie that i brought up was american psycho firmly yes. you know the book was written in the 80s uh the movie set in the 80s and uh there's a pretty seminal scene that has a business card at the center of it is it and i i can't think of any other movie that really has a prop like like just a printed i mean there's maps and things like that like you think about the goonies and stuff but like mm -hmm, mm -hmm. just something where it's something so benign i guess it's like sort of a it became an obsession yeah, about, yeah yeah with this guy well with this whole group of people really right yeah 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 yeah, yeah. and so um so i want to uh, jump into a clip where we talk about the introduction uh of this prop of the business card so let's give it a listen all right so when I was thinking of 
a movie scene that has a designed object at the center of it. You know, I was, I was rolling through a lot of different thoughts here, but one that has come up over the years with several design friends I have is the business card scene in American Psycho, the Christian Bale movie. Do you oh, know this scene? yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really the one of the few scenes of that movie that I really remember. Yeah, I think a lot of people remember it. I mean, it's really funny, actually. I say design friends, but uh, there are some non-design friends I know that <laughs> that's sort of their introduction to design. <laughs> and so maybe that says a lot about us and you and I and the profession we've chosen. Yeah, because it was so... What I remember about that is, um, I mean, business cards are important to you and me and other designers, but uh, I've never seen it as a, a central part of a movie like that that actually caused uh, bad things to happen. Yeah, you know, like you said, it was a seminal scene um, about something really kind of unimportant in the world, but so important to those people. And you brought up something, I admit, I've seen the movie a couple times. Uh, I love the scene, very familiar with the business card scene, but you brought up some of the interesting inconsistencies in their business cards and even uh, you know, some, how we say, typographical challenges, which adds this level of hilarity to a group of people so obsessed with them, right? Yeah, and really, so um, the business that all these people were in is uh, mergers and acquisitions. So a lot of numbers, a lot of details, very ego-driven also. You know, that's why everybody was uh, obsessing over these business cards. But all of these people are, are also off in a way. And so whether it was intended or not, there's some really interesting things happening with each of the uh, business cards being used as props in this uh, in this movie, let's uh, let's give this clip a listen too. But this is one thing that's even—I <laughs> don't even know if this is on purpose or by accident. So you know, as I mentioned earlier, um, these guys work for Pierce and Pierce, and it's a mergers and acquisitions firm. So like, a, there's a uh -huh. there's like a word mark that's their logo, or it's like derivations of this one quote unquote logo. Because again, everyone interprets it differently on their cards. But um, acquisitions is actually misspelled on every <laughs> one of these cards. Oh no, kidding! Yeah, it misses uh. the C. Like it's it's spelled A Q U I S I. Uh -huh. So it's hilarious that out of all these jokers. You know, no one can even correctly spell the profession that they're in. So all of all of them are damaged in some way. Each of their personalities has yeah, a, a damaged yeah. bit. Yeah. Yeah, and and it's it's really great. Bateman's card, like if you actually go back and and look at this. So this is you know Christian Bale's card that he's so proud of. Right. There's also another typo. So there's actually um, a space missing between the the company is Pierce Ampersand Pierce. Uh huh. And on his card, there's a space missing between the ampersand sand and the second pierce so like not only is there a, a misspelling in the business name but then they didn't even get the spacing right like it's really great yeah, so the, yeah. the and so the thinking is there there's like a great theory online about this that 
the card is actually brilliant in that it presents on its surface as being very clean and very mm -hmm. like upstanding kind of mm -hmm. like the character but the mm -hmm. longer and it's also like the trim on it is off so like the margins like everything is quote unquote off center mm -hmm. so the more you look at this card the more you're like man this this stuff just really doesn't add something's up something's not right yeah, yeah like there's all these little details that start to manifest themselves yeah and yeah. so again that's a nod to this guy presents himself very well at first but the more you live with him the more you're like uh there's yeah. like a lot of little weird things that are happening so here. It, it was like it's about the the flash of the first impression but when it gets to the substance of of um of quality or something like that uh it's it's just not there yeah you know elliot you brought up just uh, an interesting point a minute ago about the business cards representing these broken kind of dysfunctional people coming together and the movie prop that i was talking about was the giant w in it's a mad 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 world and what I love about this is there's this random group of people that come together because of an accident and it introduces this idea from this movie that was uh, from 1963, introduces this idea of this ensemble cast and just sort of all these characters that people knew so well were popping up in unusual places. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it just, the search for the giant W sets uh -huh. <laughs> all of these weird characters off in their unusual directions. You used the term madcap comedy earlier. It is the maddest of caps. It, it is truly it, like a, it's a live action mad magazine. Oh yeah, there is so much going on. It's amazing. It is exhausting, but the thing, uh, so a little bit about the movie. Um, for people who haven't seen it. And uh, again, came out in 1963, and it is essentially a road race. Um, but it's uh, what happens, uh, and I'm not giving anything away because this happens in the, the first two minutes of the movie. Um, a car goes over a cliff uh, in mountainous region of Southern California, and people who were driving along uh, that this car had passed, they witnessed this, uh, they all stopped to pull over to see what happened to the guy. So they, uh, they go down into the valley where the car went over and the guy is laying there, he's still alive, but just barely. And uh, this is where you know that it's gonna be uh, madcap because he tells them that he wants them to search for this money that is rightfully his. And it's $350,000, and uh, that today would have been $2.8 So, you know, a decent chunk of change. And he keeps saying that it's supposedly, it's buried under a big W. Now, the guy who is dying, who had uh, essentially stolen this money and hidden it and then gone to prison and now he's out of prison and then crashes is Jimmy Durante, the famous entertainer. And it just sets up that there will be cameos by everybody in this movie. So think about these uh, five very different types of people, these eccentric characters 
that just meet out of nowhere on a road and are all told at the same time that they should find a way to get this money and split it, essentially. Long story short, they argue and they can't. We're listening to or, or watching, really, these people run around. They're talking about the, you know, the, the, the words that were on the dead man's lips, of course, which are kind of a riddle. And he says, look for the big W. Did we ever figure out what the W stood for in this movie? Like, what does it actually mean? Yeah, no, uh, it's never referenced at huh. all, um, which, you know, we could probably make up some interesting theories of that yeah um you know winning uh or sure. something like yeah, that. yeah charlie but sheen planted the palm trees yeah maybe charlie charlie sheen was the only one not in the movie right uh, yeah i think so um but you know interesting this is sort of a behind the scenes you know how i love sort of the behind the scenes of stuff yeah um they told i'm not going to give away the whole story because we've got an interesting clip that talks about the uh number of stunt people used and and how that. they yeah. and yeah. how they kept the script a secret they gave right. a, a they gave us a reading script and a stunt script so let's take a listen to that and and interestingly enough this movie is so cram full of action that each actor was given two scripts one for the dialogue and one for the action and uh, i found this interesting tidbit that as you know, if you've seen it recently, like I just did, it's so true. At the time this movie was made, which I think it was made in late 1962, because um, it came out in 63, there were only about 100 stunt performers in the country. 80 of them worked on this film. So 80% of all stunt performers were in this movie at the same time. <laughs> Hey, Todd, so we're talking about stunts. So speaking of stunts, I think one thing we can agree on is that there's probably no bigger publicity stunt for a city than when they announce they are hosting a future Olympic Games. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. And it's got to be a big deal for a city to win the games like this. Yeah. Let's hear a quick clip about one of the cities that a lot of listeners might not be aware was in the running for uh, for the Winter Olympic Games, and it's a city here in the United States. There were a number of U.S. cities as well. So one of them was Lake Placid, New York. So we know how mm -hmm. that ended for Lake Placid, of course. They got the Olympics four years later, the Winter Olympics. Right. Right. Salt Lake City, Utah, that may sound familiar. We also know how it ended for them. You know, they got right. the Olympics uh, a number of years later. Seattle, Washington, uh, to the best of my knowledge, they've never hosted Olympics. They got coffee. They, they Yeah, they got Starbucks, so that was they a good Starbucks. consolation prize. Yeah, uh -huh. and grunge. Okay, but the city I want to talk to you about today is none other than the mile-high city of Denver, Colorado. Does that ring a bell Sweet. with the Olympics? Does that, when you think Olympics and when you think host cities in the United States, does, does Denver, is that one of the cities that pops into your head? Uh, no, I'm, I'm sorry it doesn't, but that, I, I may just not know uh, that much about it. But no, I don't, I don't think I've ever heard of Denver hosting the Olympics. There's a reason for that. Okay, so that was 
1976. Yep. Um, yep. I mean, I was around. I know you were very young. Yep. But for the life of me, I don't remember the Olympics being held in Colorado, Elliot. So <laughs> what did I, did I miss something here? <laughs> well, uh, sort of. I would say there, there are a lot of people in this story who missed something. <laughs> I would say uh, <laughs> the, the people of Denver and uh, the, the people leading the state of Colorado missed, uh, missed one big thing. And that was talking to the voters, talking to the people mm, to see mm-hmm. what they thought about hosting a game. So let's, uh, let's give that a listen real quick to hear how that turned out. So it sounds like the rest of the world and the selection committee were really high on Denver, but not other people? <laughs> <laughs> not. Uh... It turns out the residents of Colorado did not think that this was as good of an idea as the city of Denver and the rest of the world. There was kind of this donut around Denver that uh, really wasn't down with this happening, basically. So the hitch was that Colorado voters had to ultimately pass any legislation to fund the games. Oh, wow. No big deal, right? You know, right. I'm sure I'm sure Denver's like, hey, look. Who wouldn't want that? State pride, national pride. Who wouldn't want this? Yeah, turns out the voters of Colorado didn't want it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, oh, man. So they voted it down. They voted the measure down in a three to two margin. So, in other words, for, you know, every two people who voted for it, three people voted against it. They said 60% of voters said thanks, but no thanks. And their objections uh, were largely along the lines of what I mentioned earlier. They objected to the cost. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. objected to the the updates to the infrastructure. That is kind of the headache I mentioned in Atlanta, right? Like, mm-hmm. who wants mm-hmm. this stuff? But also, keep in mind, this is Colorado. And so they really place a high value, and rightfully so, on the environment there. And they did not think the environmental impact at the end of the day was going to be worth it. So anyway, Todd, uh, as we found out, you know, it doesn't always work out, right? (laughs) Even though you uh, not only have a lot of civic pride for yourself and you convince other people that, uh, you know, your your town is the spot, at the end of the day, um, sometimes... uh, Austria wins, I think, when it all boils mm-hmm. down to it. Mm-hmm. But let's talk about when the U.S. You remember when the U.S. was winning, Todd? Do you remember that? Again, the 80s. 1984. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 1984. I mean, we could, heck, we could have a whole podcast series just about 1984. Not the book. I mean, like the year Ghostbusters. Came. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, we could do a podcast where we read the book. But, oh. you know, that would that would lose even more listeners. But anyway. Interestingly enough, um, there's here's a clip that I love that talks about how L.A. was chosen. And, um, you know, it's just shy of pulling a name out of a hat, I think, if you recall, yeah. how the, 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 the cities that were <laughs> it was, in yeah, it, was, it was an incredibly scientific process, if I recall. <laughs> Why L.A. in 1984? And for those of you... Um, who weren't around in 1984, it's exactly the way you think it would be if you listened to uh, Madonna records and watched the Brat Pack movies. It was 
was very colorful. It was very bright. Uh, it was very geometric. Anyway, so L.A. was awarded the uh, the bid for the to be the host city in 1978. So they did it, you know, quite a few years in advance. But get this, Elliot, the bid was only between two cities um, because at the time uh, in the 72 Munich Olympics. Uh, the murder of the Israeli athletes oh, yes. had really put a black spot on the Olympics. And then you're talking about the Winter Olympics of 76, but the Summer Olympics in Montreal in 76 were a financial disaster. Yes. So, so there were only two cities that wanted to host the Olympics. One was L.A. and the other one was Tehran, Iran. So... I don't know if you really, if you recall things that were happening around 1978 in Iran. I recall they weren't good. They weren't good. That's true. Uh, some shit went down is what happened. Um, so ultimately, the um, Tehran bid was withdrawn due to growing revolution policy and the Iranian government. So this is when the Shah was ousted and then... Uh, Later, 1979, hostages were taken. Mm -hmm. um, and anyway, so that we're not talking about that yet. So, um, ta-da, oddly enough, L.A. won the bid. And that's in quotation <laughs> points. So, Todd, we talk L.A. Um, L.A. Olympics, I mean, I, being the age that I am, I vaguely remember the Lake Placid Olympics. Like, I'm just barely old enough to remember those. I was um, six or seven when those happened. But the L.A. Olympics, I was 11 then. And I vividly remember those. I mean, I remember watching those on TV. Yeah, yeah. Were you wearing your Coca-Cola? I was wearing, wearing my, yeah, Coca-Cola When gear? I wasn't wearing my Spuds McKenzie uh, shirts, I was, yeah, wearing, or oh, my perfect. Ocean Pacific. I was, or my jam. And, and your Madonna, yeah. your Madonna lace. Yeah, exactly. Bustier. Yeah, well, yeah, you know, great. that's me. Fashion victim. Guilty as charged. <laughs> hey. Um, but I, what I really remember is, I think, you know, my family, my family was one of those. Uh, we, I would always go over to friends' houses, and they would have like fancy things like color TVs that had push buttons rather than <laughs> knobs, and they had this magical box called a remote control. And so we, we were. What was funny was I remember my family being one of the first families to have cable, but we were one of the uh -huh. last families to actually enjoy that cable in color. <laughs> I, I don't know. They had fancy boxes <laughs> called remote controls, and the Strunk family had two little boys to go up to the TV. So, and yeah, change. exactly. <laughs> you know, some, you know, in the 1800s, uh, families would have multiple children to perform farm chores. Uh, my right, brother right, and right. I, later in life, comparing notes, figured it was just so my dad could watch uh, football on different channels at the same time. <laughs> but I digress. Um, but when we finally did get a color TV, this was, I just remember how killer these Olympics looked right like i mean yeah, i felt they yeah. were really really special like it certainly didn't look like any other sporting event or tv show i mean that that that's just the look and feel of it was magical it, it was and uh the designer deborah sussman worked closely with uh, the architects for the games and i think this was one of the first times when they came together as an entire design system. And um, the architects gave Deborah Sussman some great advice uh, that I captured in this clip. Let's take a listen. 
Her inspiration was diverse indigenous cultures that um, expressed Los Angeles and Southern California. And she combined these with traditional elements that you might find in the US, uh, such as stars and stripes, but they weren't overly uh, nationalistic. They weren't red, white, and blue. Um, they were bold shapes, um, patterns, as I said. And um, in working with the architect, uh, John Jordi, uh, they, they created all of these environmental pieces. Um, they created the wayfinding. And he gave her uh, an interesting bit of advice. And I think this is so cool when um, they were first starting out. It, let, me, let me guess, did he say never stand up in a canoe? <laughs> that, and then the second thing he said was, don't look at this as just you're making signs to tell people what bus to get on. Think about this as the whole. You're doing, like dream of this as a whole entire system. And uh, he referred to her design scheme as festive federalism, which I think was pretty fun too. Okay, Todd, so you, you really talked about the, the future state, how uh, the 84 Olympics really set the stage for, for what was to come. And uh, hey, speaking of the future, I'm thinking about our next round of drinks. Uh, how about we take a minute stroll over to the bar and wet our whistles for the second half of our uh, our walk down memory lane what do you think hey sounds good uh, we'll see we'll see everyone back here in just a minute so jim we got a problem with our podcast right nobody says it correctly <laughs> no some people say how to fix it or how do you fix it but think of it like this whatever the problem we're in this together how do we fix it? How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? Yeah, how do we fix it? The Solutions Show, from the political to the personal. Practical ideas for creative listeners. How do we fix it? How do we fix it? Ideas that work. That's your radio voice, Richard. Oh, well, I know. <laughs> I love it. I couldn't do it to save my life. Hi, while we have your attention, if you want to learn more about us and the podcast, there are a few ways to do it. Visit our website at two designers walk into a bar.com. All of that is spelled out. No numbers. Kind of a long URL, so do yourself a favor and bookmark it. Once you're there, you can find links to more information about the subjects in this episode, our episode archive, and information about both of us. Wait, we do want people to visit, right? Well, oh, and look for us on social media. You can find those links on our website as well. And while we're at it, if you have a friend who you feel will dig on our rambling, tell him or her what we're up to. While we can't guarantee that they will remain your friend, we can guarantee that they will listen to at least 30 seconds of whatever episode you send them the link to. <laughs> That's being a little shameless. And speaking of being shameless, it wouldn't be a proper ask if we didn't mention that if you like what you hear, you can also make a donation via our website. We have a Nigerian prince handling all transactions for us. In fact, he told us to mention that we have stickers to mail to anyone who donates $10 or more. Are we done? We're done. We're done. Episode 18 was a total shift in something that we normally talk about, Elliot, wasn't it? We, we talked about highbrow stuff earlier in the season, like the Olympics, 
technology, things like that. Uh-huh. But episode 18, we really, I think, hit our stride when we were talking about Saturday morning cartoons. So basically what you're telling me is you feel our wheelhouse is our inner child. I, yeah, why not? I mean, you got to admit, we did talk about a couple great cartoon characters and a couple great cartoon episodes. Yeah, yeah. Well, you talked about a cartoon character. I, I would argue my characters were actually from fairy tales, and then they were simply updated for uh, the movies, and then, of course, later Saturday morning when I encountered them, right? Boy, were they updated. Uh, do you remember? I love when you were telling me a little bit about the background of, of Three Little Bops. Yes. So the Three Little Bops, for those of you who have never seen this, and if, if you've never seen it, I genuinely feel bad for you. This is probably, <laughs> in terms of a six-minute short or six-and-a-half minutes or however long it is, I love this. And I think I just love it because it uh, – because it's one of these Warner Brothers one-off cartoons where mm-hmm. they just kind of, on a lark, just went out and reinterpreted The Three Little Pigs. So let's, let's give that a listen real quick. Warner Brothers decided, hey, it's the mid-50s. In fact, it was 1957 uh, when this cartoon was released. And um, why don't we do uh, a modern retelling of the Three Little Pigs? Oh, okay. So 1957, you said. So yes. uh, Fritz Freeling and Holly Pratt were also at Warner Brothers at the same time. Ah, yeah. So we'll have to check the credits. Could very yeah, well be yeah. the so same folks. There's a folks. connection there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it could. It could have been. This was maybe their taste for jazz that they then took away with them when yeah. they started their own thing. Yeah. Very cool. Basically, as I mentioned, this cartoon is a Mm one-off. So it doesn't have any of the typical Warner Brothers characters. You know, no Porky Pig, no Bugs Bunny, no Daffy Duck, Foghorn Leghorn, none of those guys, okay? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, Nor does Mel Blanc do any of the voices in this particular Mm -hmm. episode. So this is like Mm -hmm. one of a handful of Warner Brothers cartoons, Looney Tunes, where Mm -hmm. he was not part of it. Yeah, I mean, what a great premise for for a cartoon. And you mentioned it was the one-off. Uh, so, you know, I think we relaxed the rules a little bit on Three Little Bops uh-huh. with uh, that animation style. Uh-huh. And even the music style and the lyrics themselves, uh, I thought were hilarious. Oh, gosh, yeah. Yeah, let's, we don't even need to say any more than that. Let's just jump in and listen to a quick nugget about the lyrics. All right. Yep. <laughs> yeah, that was a that curveball I hung over the plate for Todd, everybody. <laughs> Please continue. So these three clubs were called the House of Straw and the mm-hmm. Dew Drop In, which was the one made from sticks, and uh-huh. then the House of Bricks that was built in 1776, according to the <laughs> lyrics. I mean, this, okay. this was the tempo in the song is so great. I mean, I love it so much. Encouraging all our listeners, go to the episode page on our website and uh, take a look at this cartoon clip of Three Little Bobs. Oh, yeah, we yeah we have it up there for you guys. Absolutely. It's fantastic on so many levels. And we also have another one, which is a favorite episode of mine, mm-hmm. by the Pink Panther. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the things that I was talking about from this production company Three Little Bops gets into that kind of surreal nature of cartoons a lot, but 
Pink Panther kind of takes it a little bit to an absurd level uh, with the cartoon episode Pink Blueprint. Do you remember that? I love that episode. Yes, 100%. 100% I remember. A quality of their work was about sort of going three steps beyond reality. So it was, you know, the, the language of cartoons and extreme things happened, but it was almost a surreal quality, too. And they were just absolutely masters of a modern look and comic timing. They're probably single-handedly responsible for kids like me jumping off of ledges, expecting to hang in the air before, you know, recognizing there was nothing under me, like suspended in air for like, you know, five <laughs> seconds until I look at, until I look up at the camera and then fall. You know what was interesting? It's funny that you were talking about Inspector Clouseau and a voice in the Pink Panther because I, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, was it, I think there was maybe one time where, if I remember correctly, the Pink Panther broke the fourth wall and he, like, mm-hmm. spoke to the audience. Mm-hmm. Was mm-hmm. that, am I correct in remembering that? But You are. Yeah. So, basically, they had to, the surreal nature of everything, they had to do that because it was all pantomime. There was no yeah, dialogue yeah. to keep you engaged, right? Yeah, right, right. That's, and that's one of the factors that I love so much about uh, the, this character. So for people who have never seen that episode, and again, uh, as we mentioned a minute ago, this is on our episode page. You can please, please, please go watch it. Um, Pink Panther, if I remember correctly, Todd, he wanted this super funky modern style house, right? Yeah. And yeah. Uh, and I really think the the backgrounds and the animations, there was, there was a very sort of modern, and I'm going to use that, word in quotes right but there was a very modern sort of knowing sensibility it was a little bit different i think than warner brothers cartoons there was definitely the level of humor mm-hmm. but i think it was mm-hmm. approached from a from a different perspective yeah definitely it uh it was an uh homage to mid-century modern and uh, here's a little bit about that What I really love about this, you've already mentioned that there was little to no dialogue, so it was all pantomime, which was just rich. And the styling of these cartoons, they were very mod. The backgrounds were really simple. Limited line work, um, limited color, kind of wonky mid-century shapes and perspectives. And, you know, total of the time, right? And, and even the line work in the backgrounds, which they were just beautiful. The line work was enhanced, super rough, um, uneven, very textural lines. Like, uh, do you remember the illustrator, uh, Mr. Fotheringham? Oh, yeah. That kind of texture. Like, Ink blot. Yeah, yeah. A, you know, just beautiful. So of the time. So that combined with the limited dialogue, a heavy use of great sort of swinging jazz music by Henry Mancini really made this character and this series stand out. Episode 19, we kind of came off the lowest of brows with cartoon culture 
into maybe. Hey, speak for yourself, pal. I mean, I was delving into I was delving into literature here. Yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, it, it was it was thick. It was like takes on Hamlet. You're right, but. Our uh, episode 19 was about flag design, which was maybe even the highest of brows. It's up and, there. Um, yep. It's up there because you know what we learned? Uh, you were talking about we both picked two countries. Mm-hmm. I was afraid we were going to pick the same country. Mm-hmm. And you, you, uh, you taught me a lot about the country of the canal and uh, its origins of the flag, which I had no idea about. I love, yeah, I just love the design of this flag. Ever since I was little, um, been into flags, and uh, this was always one that stuck with me whenever I was, I don't know, looking at a flag book or flipping through an encyclopedia or, you know, whatever those reference books were when we were in school and we would need to go to the library and look something up. Uh, That flag always stuck with me. I always really, really liked it. And uh, so, yeah, yeah. I'll tell you what, rather than me continuing to ramble, let's uh, listen to a clip of me rambling about uh, the design of the Panamanian flag. You mentioned that, obviously, you know Panama, you know the Panama Canal. Mm-hmm. So um, the the flag, you said you might not be totally aware of what it looks like. So I'm going to I'm going to describe it for you. So, as you guessed earlier, it is, in fact, a rectangle. I know that was a mm-hmm. mind bender. Um, so, it's a typical flag ratio, like a three to two ratio, uh, horizontal rectangle. This is a quote directly from the Panamanian government in terms of the dictates of the design of their flag. Okay? So, the flag of the republic consists thus of a divided rectangle of four quarters the upper field close to the pole, white with a blue star of five points, the upper field further from the pole, red, so it's solid red, the lower field near the pole, blue, so it's solid blue, and the lower one further from the pole, white with a red star of five points. So in other words, it's a rectangle divided into four smaller rectangles, And then each of those rectangles is either solid red or solid blue or has a five-pointed star that's either red or blue. So I think when I was little, I really liked this flag because it reminded me, of course, with the stars and the colors of the American flag. But of course, it's very, very different in terms of its design. And so I think I sort of had this aha moment where it was like taking the same ingredients but sort of Mm -hmm. using them in Mm -hmm. a different way. And so I think that's the reason that I remembered it. Okay, so good description, but that was not the first flag, right? Did they didn't they have some troubles with the design? <laughs> troubles. Um, yeah, uh, trouble. It was yeah. We'll say the first uh, design that was suggested was troublesome on, on a number of different levels, I think. So uh, I'll tell you what, we, we talk a let's little bit about, about that. that. Yeah, let's <laughs> let's jump in. I mean, why not? There's, You know what, Todd? In, in life, you sometimes learn by good examples, and there are other times you learn through bad examples. And I would say right, uh, this is an example right. of the latter. Let's talk for a minute about the design that was shot down. I think I mentioned to you that the flag that we see today was, in fact, the second design. Okay, 
So, Philippe Jean Buno Varia, maybe that was the correct pronunciation, with apologies to his descendants, uh, he was a French soldier who was influential in the construction of the Panama Canal. So I mentioned the Panama Canal earlier, how mm -hmm. uh, then and today it was so important uh, for the country of Panama. Um, so his wife designed the first serious proposal for a Panamanian flag. And let's just say it was a bit on the rough side. So um, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's the ultimate of, I kind of like what you did, Elliot, but my wife had some ideas to share, too. Yeah. Well, uh, in this case, it was sort of saying to the United States, we like what you did, but we want to put our own flavor on it. Um, so uh, it was based on the flag of the United States, um, again, possibly due to our country's hand in, the, in Panamanian independence, right? So I understand that. So our flag has 13 horizontal stripes. This flag design had 13 horizontal stripes. However, rather than red and white horizontal stripes, they were red and yellow. So um, this, of course, as I mentioned earlier, was due to the connection to Colombia, you know, because Colombia's one of their colors is red and mm -hmm. the other one is uh, blue and then, of course, yellow. And um, but also who was Colombia settled by? The Spanish. And what are the mm -hmm. country's colors of Spain? That is red and yellow. So red and yellow permeating um, this design for, for you know, kind of, you know, it's like Russian nesting dolls inside of something else inside of something else here. Right, right. Okay. So Buenaventura also replaced the stars in the, the blue canton in the blue field in the United States flag with, and this is this is crazy, and we'll post an image of this online because even when you read it, you can't quite visualize this, okay? So um, instead of the stars, the white stars, there were two interconnected yellow suns, okay? Mm -hmm. So kind of like Tatooine in Star Wars, there's two suns. <laughs> and the suns represent North and South America, but they're connected, of course, because Panama connects both of the continents. Oh, clever. Um, well, so it's like it's like a Venn diagram in a flag. Sort of. It's really more like a flaming barbell. Because <laughs> the way these okay, two not things at all Yeah, I the imagine. way these two things are connected is kind of with a horizontal yellow stick of butter kind of rod or something. I don't oh. know. So yeah, not like a Venn diagram at all. Okay talked about you learn from good examples and bad examples and we talked about some of the troubles uh, the flag that I chose was the flag of Switzerland and if you remember I was trying to explain the origins of where Swiss red came from talking about the different cannons and do you remember how we got into this sort of discussion about was it pronounced Schweiz Schwitz <laughs> And you finally came to a, a solution. But let's listen to the clip. How about that, Ellie? <laughs> yeah, I, we're hooked on phonics over here at Two Designers. <laughs> yeah. E each canton operated independently, yet they were all part of the Kingdom of Germany and the Holy Roman Empire. And this is cool. So one of the cantons was called Schwitz. And I'll spell that and then clean off my microphone. But it's S-C-H 
W-Y-Z. Schwitch. 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 How would you pronounce that, Elliot? Schweiss. Schweiss. Okay. Perhaps. I mean, again, you have German I, I, lineage, so I am I would, the I yeah, but go. I'm also the person who apologized earlier for not knowing how to pronounce Schweiz. anything. Schweiss, maybe. Yeah. Schweiss. Yeah. Okay. I think I think we should, in spirit of Mel Brooks, we should call it Schwartz. Schwartz. Yeah. So, Todd, the Schwartz it is. I think we settled on that. I, we Perfect. probably lost uh, both of our listeners in Switzerland uh, by doing that, but. Uh, you know, um, we, we need to all sacrifice for our art, I think. I think we can agree on that. We do. We do. And, you know, I was trying to talk highbrow policy, Swiss culture, feudal system, federalism, things like that, about flags. And I used the term imperial immediacy. Mm. And you got totally distracted thinking that would be a great band name. Um, so in spite of that, Here's a little bit about why it was important to have flags that honored the, uh, the different political leaders. Now, enter a guy named Wilhelm Tell. Does that sound familiar to you, Elliot? It does. Yeah. Uh, he wrote an overture, shot an apple off his kid's head, blah, blah, blah. Um, he was a Swiss revolutionary battling the cruel treatment by the counts of Hatsburg House. And... Folklore tells us he was the one who encouraged the, some of the cantons to join together to form the Confederacy of Switzerland. So at the time, there were three that joined to form the initial Confederacy. And although the different cantons worked together as one battle unit, they still flew under different symbols. So the Swiss Confederacy, the, which was referred to now as the Old Swiss Confederacy, won more territorial battles and more cantons joined the Confederacy, and it started to become a problem on the battlefield because they couldn't identify who was friend or who was foe. So they had to find a way to kind of come together um, because this was causing a great problem and a great divide. So, Elliot... Incidentally, this is exactly how ABBA broke up, too. I don't know if you knew that. Well, it's funny you bring up music because I was thinking Imperial Immediacy would be an amazing name for a metal band. Well, Todd, so I was talking about uh, Central America. You were talking about Europe. Um, Mm -hmm. Europe's known for a lot of things. I think we can agree on that, right? A lot of uh, influences on American culture. Clogs? Uh, well, I mean, outside of your wardrobe. Oh, oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Um, I was thinking more food. Yeah. Food, yeah. Uh, sauerkraut? Yeah, oh. And what goes great yeah. with sauerkraut? Sausages! That's right. That's right. Speaking of sausages and sports mascots. Yes. They both go great with sauerkraut, I think. They do. They do. Okay. So, yes. Sausages, sports mascots. You guys know where we're headed if you're baseball fans and you live in Around the, the bases, baby. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah we're, we're always, uh, you know, Todd, they, they say it's, uh, you know, they say it's easy to get to first base, but uh, I don't know. Ask sixth grade me Not that. Not in a sausage yeah. suit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, you got to pick your battles for sure. But anyway, yeah, yeah. famous sausages. Yes, so the Milwaukee Brewers and their famous sausages. Probably not the first uh, first mascot to pop in your head when you think, oh yeah, baseball team. So mm-hmm. um, let's let's delve a little bit into uh, to how this was revealed to uh, to the fans of the <laughs> Brewers. <laughs> Let's forget about those. Let's let's push uh, Bernie Brewer and Barrel Man off to the side because today, yeah. the group of mascots that we're highlighting are the famous racing sausages. Uh, say say what? <laughs> apparently, they're not that famous. I'm not familiar with this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, apparently, you've never been to a Brewers game. So no, I haven't, and I don't know how. Well, I can see how sausages may have a role in uh, Milwaukee, but I don't know what they would have to do with baseball or anything like that. Did you just purposely use the word sausage and roll in the same sentence? I I did not, but it really just you know, it really played out just beautifully. <laughs> You're just that magically brilliant. I see. It's just magically brilliant. Okay, yeah. So the big question, right? How do sausages figure into baseball? These are not, I mean, you know, you have hot dogs at the ballpark, right, kind of loosely, but that's a far stretch from saying, hey, you know what we ought to do? Let's turn this into our mascot, especially when they're not the Milwaukee hot dogs or the Milwaukee sausages, <laughs> right. right? So uh, right. what what happened here? You know, Elliot, funny thing about that clip, as well as the whole episode 20 about sports mascots, is we said things in that episode that I never thought I would hear, you know, like famous sausages Mm -hmm. uh, running the bases, Mm -hmm. uh, sausages were stolen, you know, things like (laughs) that. I'm like, I never thought we would talk about such things. But, you know, you did have a little journalistic um, uh, chutzpah there and told us about um, an incident with, um, I can't remember the guy's name, the guy that you mentioned. His name was... Oh, his name was Randall Simon. So you're... Yes, okay. yes, yes. So I assume chutzpah is Yiddish for scoop. Because, you know, what yeah, I had yeah, was yeah. The, the down and dirty details about, uh, yeah, an assault that happened. And it involved yeah. us. And it happened in plain view of thousands upon thousands of baseball fans. <laughs> an assault on a, from a sausage. <laughs> well, it was... Yeah, a yeah, sausage yeah, there's, salt. Yeah, there's, there's a word there somewhere. A sausage. A sauce. I can't do it. I can't figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> it's like you talking about uh, people uh, having some sort of growth disorder due to spiders or something. It's just I, <laughs> I just can't put the words together properly. But at any rate, it's, why don't we listen to it? Why don't we listen to it and see what uh, what comes? Yeah, out yeah. It? Let's uh, let's turn to the police blotter for a minute. Remember how earlier I mentioned a little bit of legal trouble or, you know, a little bit of a fracas involving uh, the sausages? Okay. So this is known informally as the Randall Simon incident. All right. So let me lay this out for you. And uh, P.S. There will be footage of this on our episode page so you guys can witness it or relive it if you're in the uh, greater Milwaukee area, a baseball fan or both. So on July 9th, 2003, Randall Simon, who was then the first baseman of the Pittsburgh Pirates, decided to play a joke while sitting in the dugout between innings, right? So visiting teams had come to Milwaukee, and over time, they all became familiar with the sausage race because this would be run at the bottom of the sixth inning. So this was very well known. 
So he tapped Mandy Block, who is wearing the Italian sausage costume with a bat as the sausage, mm-hmm. you know, the cluster ran by, the five sausages ran by in the race that we mentioned. He just kind of like loosely tapped her and he didn't hit her, uh, hit, you know, the top of the, the sausage costume because it's much taller right. than six feet, right? But as you can imagine, due to that, the center of gravity is pretty wonky. So it ended up (laughs) knocking her over. And then she ended up kind of like bowling pins. She ended up taking out the hot dog too. (laughs) So (laughs) I just love hearing you say that she ended up taking out the hot dog. That's right. That's right. (laughs) So (laughs) uh, then the Polish sausage helped the Italian sausage up and all the sausages finished the race. So that's teamwork. That's, that's the spirit right there, right? So man, that's the United Nations, right? That is, that is in, in, in meat product form. Okay. So you're thinking, ah, you know, it's a prank. No harm, no foul, no big deal. Well, Simon was arrested. He was fined and he was suspended by major league baseball for three games. He ended up later apologizing. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it was, this was considered to be assault. So, yeah. So what did Mandy Block want? Right. You know, so she was the one who got knocked down, took out her teammates uh, in the race. Like like what was you know, what was what was the end game here? Right. Uh huh. So she asked only that the offending bat, the bat he used, be autographed and (laughs) given to her. So she wanted the actual bat that knocked her down (laughs) autographed. So uh, Simon, Randall Simon, actually went ahead and did it. So he uh, he obliged. Yeah, so (laughs) great. That's a great story. And, uh, you know, Randall Simon, give the guy guy a pat on the back, trying to make things right. I think he got into trouble giving someone else a pat on the back, Todd. (laughs) Sausage assault. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, see, that's the phrase I was trying to figure out. Dun, dun. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Law and order. Law and order. Sausage Sausage assault. (laughs) (laughs) Milwaukee. Law and order Milwaukee. Yeah. So he sounds like an awfully colorful character Mm -hmm. uh, and... Speaking of other colorful characters, my sports mascot was from Syracuse University. And everybody knows the current mascot for Syracuse, right, Elliot? Yeah, Yeah, the orange. Oh, yeah, Yeah. the orange, right. Um, But I don't know if you recall, like, I got into a little bit of the origin of how Syracuse, the town, the university came to be. Mm -hmm. And I was adding it all up like a calculus formula that led to the most logical of mascots being a bird, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> Too I much. And then, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that didn't last very long until they chose another one. Uh, anyway, I'll let me explain it to the listeners here in this clip. So the university began in 1870 and... They're widely known now as Syracuse Orange, right? But unfortunately, in the early days, their school colors were pea green and rose pink, which sounds like if you've eaten bad soup, something that might come back to to visit you. Um, So those colors, thankfully, didn't last long. They were quickly changed. And in 1890... The colors and the the mascot theme was chosen to be orange to represent the Dutch House of Orange, which were also major settlers of the upstate New York area. So now they're called Syracuse Orange. 
in honor of the Dutch House of Orange. And so they thought after that, well, we need a mascot to go with this. So, Elliot, question for you. Sure. With a nickname like Syracuse Orange and a city founded through the generosity of the Onondaga Native Americans, what would be a great mascot? Ooh. Hmm. You're right. You're right. Orioles. Obviously, <laughs> Orioles. <laughs> that would be great, actually. That lasted a bit, and then they changed to the Syracuse um, uh, Hilltoppers. Okay. Um, and that was a little of, like, none of that was really ringing true. Yeah, that was uh, that was an interesting story. So, um so they they settle on the saltine warrior <laughs> okay yeah yeah uh, how good is that yeah uh you know interesting um certainly not what we have today but what was right? i'm trying to remember now what what was the name of the salt like this was a real person oh, right yes okay you i knew you knew you're gonna test me on this yeah. all right all right let me just take a second here all right ready yeah. you ready for uh-huh. it okay the uh the saltine warrior whose remains they found on campus uh-huh. his name was horshinaga okigeta yeah that was it so it was yeah. a japanese horshinaga guy okigeta no no he was he was a onondaga chief oh i thought it was the guy who started bitcoin no no uh, no, no different no, no, japanese no. Horsh, horshinagata no wait a minute that's not right you got me confused now oh anyway anyway it turns out there was more to the story Do you want to hear a little bit about that? You're here, I'm here, let's go for it. So where I last left you in talking about Syracuse Orange, do you remember the story I told you about finding the remains of the great chief Okikera Horshinanaga on campus as they were digging up a women's gymnasium? I remember that vaguely. Actually, once we started talking about saltines, I I left for a few minutes to go get a snack. (laughs) Well, and uh, just as a reminder, uh, the great chief, uh, his name translated to saltine warrior. Oh, yes. Now I remember. And so that captivated the imagination of students, alumni, faculty. Finally, we've got this this really historical tie-in to our university on the campus of our university, and we can honor the um, Onondaga tribe, uh, Native Americans that helped us found Syracuse. There was just one tiny little problem with that. All right, what is it? That whole story was a hoax. It was completely made Really? Yes. And, however, that didn't stop them from being known as the Saltine Warriors for almost 50 years. From 1931 to 1978, they were still known as the Saltine Warriors. <laughs> Wait, when was this? Even after yeah, they found when was it was this, a hoax. When was it discovered that this was a hoax? It was in the 50s, the 1950s. And so for another... So about halfway through that, the 47-year run... Yeah, for another two decades, they just said, well, let's just ride this wave into the shore anyway. That's right. Yeah, that's right. They're like, hey, it's uh, too popular. Everybody loves the Saltine Warrior. Uh, that was fun. Well, Todd, I think uh, you know we welcomed we welcomed a lot of people uh, 
to the bar over our second season. And this is only the first half. So this was, folks, this is uh, part one. Um, and uh, if, uh, if you want more, well, the good news is we're going to have part two. We're going to cover, um, A, Todd getting me more drinks. Mm. B, uh, the second half of all the topics we covered. And then C, Todd getting me more drinks. So I really feel that you should stick around for that for our next episode. I think, I think this is a great place to end the episode then. <laughs> Before you go broke? That's right, exactly. All right, guys, we'll see you again soon. Bonjour. This is Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. I'm Andrew Pryor, and every week I bring you the wonderful and fabulous people involved in French food, whether they're here in France like me or from around the world. Each week, we dive into a specific topic, be it a French dish, an ingredient, or a French cuisine cooking technique. My guests are all about French food, so come join me on... Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. Bon app. Two Designers Walk Into a Bar is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. For more information about our show or to discover more podcasts you'll enjoy, visit evergreenpodcasts.com.